It's a cool thought to me, um, just as we were singing today, to think about the fact that Scripture says that there's a, a perpetual, unceasing worship service going on in heaven, <laughs> where they're singing to the Lord with free hearts, and, uh, and they're joyful and glad to just keep singing over and over how good and holy God is. And man, it's cool to think that, that that's going on, and, and we're doing that same kind of thing right here. Really cool to me. Anyway, just putting that out there. You can take it or leave it, but uh, I think it's pretty good, pretty cool stuff. Anyways, um, several years back, uh, several makes it sound like four or five. It was more like um, 15. Uh, so when uh, my wife and I were newlyweds, we uh, had gone to this certain store that was still around back in that day and age. There was a, a big wide open room, had a bunch of little shelves all throughout the middle, and then on, on these shelves were just stacked all kind of movies, right? Just every movie you've ever heard of. And what you would do is if you wanted to watch a movie, you didn't stream it, you didn't do any of that, right? The internet was still kind of new. Uh, you, you sometimes had to dial up and wait on it to ring and go. It was just a whole crazy thing back then, right? It was ridiculous, right? A bunch of cavemen we were. But anyways, uh, yeah, yeah, you couldn't just stream a movie back then. You had to go to a video store and rent one. And so you would go, and if they had a copy of it, what would really tick you off is if they had the, the picture of the movie, the box there, and then when you would go to take it, they didn't actually have the movie behind it. That was That's a frustrating moment, right? Because you get excited about it, then you can't rent it. Right, but if they had it behind the box, you'd take it up to the register, you'd pay a little money, rent it, and then you'd bring it back in a couple of days. Or, you know, if you were like me as a college student, a couple of years later, you'd just pay for the whole movie and never ring it back, all right? Because that's you'd lose it, you would, you'd, the late fees would add up. But we were at this specific movie theater, Jamie and I, early on in our marriage, or movie theater, movie rental place. I can't even say it right. It's been so long. All right, but we, we were there to rent a movie. We had picked one out. We went up to the front. And I'll never forget. I go up to the register and sit the one that we've chosen down on the register. And I notice that the guy who's working there behind the counter checking me out is just covered in tattoos. I mean, starting like neck and even like into cheek and like high neck in the back. Um, he's got short sleeves on. He's got a sleeve coming down on each arm. He's, he's covered up. And I remember seeing that, not because that was necessarily totally abnormal or unique for, for there and then, but, but because I noticed that he had on his finger a wedding band tattooed. And so I asked him, because this is something that, that Jamie and I had discussed a little bit and we were thinking about as newlyweds, um, it was probably pushing the envelope just a little bit for both of our families. We probably would have had to have some conversations like, I'm an adult now, um, I can put this on my finger and then I'll cover it up with a ring so you'll never know. That would have been the conversation, right? But we were thinking about possibly getting some wedding rings tattooed on our fingers. And so in front of me is a guy who obviously knows a ton about tattoos, right? He's, he's got them going on, all kinds of different tattoos. He's got the one that I'm thinking about getting and so as I'm renting this movie, I just said, hey, man, that one right there, that, that ring. He said, yeah. I said, how much did that one hurt? And he looked at, he grimaced and looked at me, and he said, man, it's the worst one I've got. Whole body. Like, all this stuff took hours. That right there, pain. Like, just a needle. Just on the bone. Just over and over. It felt like a, just a hummingbird just pecking. And I was like, all right, man, good. Glad to hear it. Good. I'm out. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Right, we made it to the car, and I told Jamie, like, no way, I'm doing that. That's over. Right? She's like, what? And I was like, if that guy gets tattoos for hours at a time, and the one that's the worst is that one, there's no way I'm fixing to do that. Right? You can call me a wuss, you can call me a wimp, or you can call me wise. They're all W words. You take your pick. Right? But I'm going, hey, I'm not jumping in on that if that hurts that much. I think it's a cool idea. I really like it, uh, but I don't want it that badly. You see, when... The, the hope that something offers us or the pleasure that something offers us is eclipsed by the hurt 
that that same thing will cause us or the pain that that same thing will cause us, we, we tend to check out and be done, don't we? It's kind of a human response. I would even argue there's probably something that God's built into us, and in a lot of occasions, we need it. It's helpful. It keeps us safe. But the reality is, is that when something becomes difficult, so much so that the difficulty is overshadowing or outweighing the object that we desire at the end of that difficulty, we, we tend to just go, no, I'm, I'm done. It's why many of us in this room, you don't have to change, uh, raise a hand, you don't have to tell anybody, but many of us have started an exercise program, Right? You started it, but you may not have finished. <laughs> I actually started this past week. There was a moment uh, on day two, I was about 17 minutes into my walk on the treadmill, which is so lame compared to young me. Right? There was a moment in there where I was like, man, I think I may be done already. I may just not care anymore. Because at some point, the, the discomfort you were experiencing and being in the gym around other people who were like bulking out with muscles and doing their deal, and you're over there struggling to do your like little one step up on the thing, and you're just, <gasps> That, that hurt, right? That discomfort became bigger for you than the delight that you saw at the end. And you went, ah, just at the end of the day, I'm just not going to do this. <laughs> We've done it with dieting. You've done it before. Some of us have done it with, unfortunately, raising or disciplining children. It's like, man, I know that this matters and I care about this and I want my kids to know structure and how much things like authority and obedience are important, but man, the, the pushback and just the, oh, everything we have to go through to, to do this discipline, right? And so eventually it's easy for us as parents to kind of just fade back away from that and go, eh, they're really good kids. We'll just kind of let everything ride unless they're like, you know, stealing the car or something, okay? When the pain outweighs the pleasure, we tend to hit the eject button. But what if, what if, even in the middle of that pain that journeys towards that great pleasure, what if in the middle of it there could be a hope? What if there could be true, genuine, sincere happiness that's strong, even in the middle of that pain? We started last week on a 15-week journey through the book of Philippians that we're calling happy, question mark. feels a little childish in some ways to even ask about happiness because as adults we don't think about being happy very often we just think about handling things <laughs> right we said it can seem a little bit super spiritual when we talk about happiness sometimes because we can make it be the only thing the most important thing and the scripture is really clear that that's not true it's God's glory is the most important thing and yet it can also seem kind of weird if we say we're followers of this Jesus who has rescued us with his holiness completely by his grace, apart from works of our own, if we say we know him and we really do, then it seems kind of weird to just completely do away with any idea of happiness and should I even care if I'm happy? We kind of super spiritualize things to a point and we forget that God actually wants us to find happiness. He said that as we're looking at Philippians, we're going to see the idea or the phrasing about joy or rejoicing over and over Again, and that this joy that the Bible talks about, it's not of a different essence than what we think about in just being happy. It's not of a different nature in and of itself. It just has a different source and a different strength. It comes from Jesus. So we see joy in the book of Philippians over and over again. And I want us to think about this intense, resilient happiness that's available only in and from Jesus. That Jesus can be enough to make us happy. And so Philippians is going to lay out for us over and over again, here's a way that if you seek Jesus, you'll find some happiness. More than that, it doesn't just tell us here's a way that you could or you can or it's possible. We're actually commanded to be happy people. If you'll remember, 
Last week, if you were around, we gave you this little card or we made available online this verse. I want us all to work on memorizing it together. Philippians 3.1 is actually a command from God's word to our hearts to be happy. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is safe for you and it's no trouble at all for me. And we're not going to all say it together this week, but give it a week or two and we're going to say it together. So be working on that, all right? Be working on meditating on that. What does that mean, thinking about it? We're going to see what happens when we lodge God's word in our hearts. But God shows us in Philippians, here's what it looks like to be happy. He calls us to be happy, rejoice. That's a command, a do it, take joy in the Lord. What specifically might it look like for him to show us what this kind of happiness looks like in the middle of our hurt? We said last week that Paul writes Philippians a little differently than he writes a lot of the other letters he writes in Scripture. He writes to the church at Philippi not to correct them, not to set straight any major wrong that's taking place in the church. He mostly writes it just as a missionary update letter to let them know what's going on. He's knowing that there's a a guy from their church, we believe, named Epaphroditus that's a helper of Paul's that's been very sick, close to death. He's writing to update them on him. And and also they know that, that Paul is currently in prison, which is what he's going to talk about here as we jump back into Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 12. Paul says this, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's situation, he's saying to them, I want you to know what God is doing and has done with this situation that I'm in. But we need to make sure we understand what the situation is. Paul mentioned it in verse 7, was one of the verses we looked at last week. He said "Listen to them, listen, you are partakers with me of grace. You are partners with me in the gospel, both in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. When I'm preaching and defending this truth about Jesus being our only hope, you're my partner. He says, then and also in my imprisonment, you're my partner. He says that because he's currently imprisoned in Rome as he's writing this letter. He was there some two years imprisoned. Now, in this imprisonment, he was not confined to a small cell, as we might typically think of. This is not Otis walking into Mayberry, all right? He is home arrested. He's on house arrest. He's, he's there in a house that was purchased for the purpose or at least rented for the purpose, provided for him to be there. He's got some, some freedoms, but he's also got things really limited because he's chained constantly, we're told in scripture, 24 hours a day. He's chained to a Roman guard. Every minute, every second, every day, all day, two years, he's chained to a guard. There's even some Particulars about the language that's used there when we're told that, that the chain mentioned is, is actually a short chain. <laughs> so he's not chained to a guy who's in the other room. He's doing his thing on his iPad. The other guy's doing his deal. That's not what's happening. They're, they're chained together with something that's probably like 18 inches, maybe 36 inches at most apart. They're, they're right there with each other all the time. Bathroom trips, right? All kinds of stuff. I sneeze is probably going to be affecting your world. That's what we're saying. That's how they're living. They're chained together. These, these, these guards, these soldiers would have rotated in most likely on six-hour shifts. So every day he got to be chained to four different guys. They're spending this time together. 
And here's what I want you to see is that Paul says, I'm living in this moment for no reason that I've done something wrong, for no criminal activity, but because I've been preaching the gospel, because I've been telling people that the holy God has rescued sinful people through the sacrifice of his solely sufficient son named Jesus. Because I've been telling people that they're hopeless apart from Jesus, that they'll never be good enough, right enough to be accepted by God. But in Jesus' righteousness, if they'll just trust in him, God says yes and come. He says, I've been preaching this, and that's the sole reason that I am 24 hours a day on house arrest, unable to make a run down to Starbucks, not even buying my own groceries. I have to stay here with these guys on a very short chain. Can you imagine that? Two years? Think about it. What were you doing two years ago? That feels like a while back, doesn't it? Two years every day, all day. That's a tough situation to be in, but what Paul says in verse 12 is, I want you brothers to know. I want you to know that this hard thing that has happened to me, it's obvious, it's implicit in his statement. He's not saying to them how horrible it is. He will later talk about some of his emotions regarding it. See that in a couple weeks. But he's not now saying, hey, listen, this is how horrible it is. He's just assuming they know. I've been in prison for a really, really long time, and I'm chained to a guy, and guys are sweaty and smelly, and this is hard. He's assuming they know that, and he says, I want you to know that this hard thing that has happened to me has what? Has actually served to advance the gospel. He's going, this gospel message, this great news of hope and freedom that the whole world needs to hear, this message has actually gone further because of the fact that I'm here in prison. I am held here I am held immobile, and yet this immobility on my part is what God is using to shout the news of the gospel out into the world. Specifically, he tells us how. He says, the whole imperial guard and all the rest have become aware that the reason I'm here is of this gospel. The imperial guard was an elite force of soldiers that guarded the Roman palace and were also positioned at at specific places throughout Rome. They were kind of the, the heavy hitters. They were the the big guys who enforced the rules. They were the guys that made everybody live in fear and nobody would step out of line because they're scared of these elite soldiers. Think, think like Green Beret, kind of like these are tough dudes. So, so tough and influential were, was this Imperial Guard that with time it became the practice that they were actually the ones who more or less just appointed and picked a Caesar for Rome because they were so strong. Nobody could fight against them. At least 10,000 of them, right? It grew later, but at this point, there's at least 10,000, likely. And Paul says this, I have been sitting here in this room, chained to this guy, and you know what God has been doing with my limitations, with my hurt? He has been spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ as I sit here next to these guys every day, and then they go and talk about it to their friends and go, I don't know about this wacko. He's talking about this Jesus stuff. And then they start to go, I don't know, maybe there is something to the Jesus stuff. Why would the wacko stay there so long? He said, man, they're sitting with me all day, every day. I'm telling them about the gospel, just being around me. They're hearing me pray out the gospel, and God has used it so that all, how many ever thousand of them have become aware that that's what it's about. And he says, the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, I think meaning just this whole big populace around them, that all of Rome has become aware. Listen, there's, there's something unique happening here. This guy's not a criminal. This guy's a gospel preacher, and he's so insistent on it, and he so will not give it up that he's been here for two years. I'm going to say this to you because maybe you come here today and you're hurting and you're frustrated with God and you don't understand God. 
If you're not there now, you probably have been or you unfortunately likely will be at some point. Make sure you catch this, that we can find happiness in our hurt when we aim it for gospel reach. That there is happiness available to us even in the deepest of our pains and hurt. We can find happiness in our hurt from Jesus when we aim our hurt at reach for the gospel. At the gospel being proclaimed. At the gospel being magnified. At people hearing about this freedom. All of a sudden I see that my pain has a purpose. And it's hurting. It doesn't necessarily mean that the pain is less. But it means that the pain matters. It means that my primary prayer is is no longer, God, make it stop. But my first prayer is, God, make it matter. I don't want to hurt for nothing. And yes, God, please make it stop. My first prayer is not stop it. My first prayer is use it. And yes, God, I would love for it to stop. But as long as this is where I am, God, please make it matter. There's happiness available to us in our hurt if we will aim that hurt to make much of Jesus. How would that happen? It would take purposefulness. It would take intentionality on our part. It would take resolve. Watch this. If if Paul decides at any point in these two years to go, hey, that whole Jesus thing I was saying, never mind on that. That's a bunch of hooey. Forget that. I was wrong. I said that. I was wrong. That's stupid. Nobody should ever. If he decides to recant on that, he now becomes the biggest spokesperson for the Romans and the people who oppose Christianity. They're the guy that they're going, oh, you're free. You get to go talk to whoever you want to. All he's got to do is hit the eject button on his faith, on the message of the gospel, and he's done. It means that there is a happiness available to us in our hurt, but we have to choose to stay in it in faith with God and not try to run from it. And in so doing, sometimes we're pushing away from God as we're running from our pain. And don't you want to be a person like Paul that when somebody is around you, they just can't leave from being around you often without having to deal with Jesus? Whether you're talking to them directly about the gospel or if they're just around you enough and they hear you talking about God enough and it just is, they're, they're just having to think about it, they're having to deal with it. Been around people and had to deal with what they're about before? You have. Our, our, our associate pastor, AJ, right? Love that guy, okay? Love that guy. Listen, you can't be around AJ very consistently without having to think about things like how your diet is, how your fitness is, how your coffee tastes, all right? You're not going to be around him And not because he's going to be a jerk or make you think about it or whatever else. It's what he wants to talk about. He's going to talk about it because he loves it. It's what he's doing. It's what he's pursuing. He cares about it. He cares about you benefiting. He just talks about it. He doesn't, that I know of, he might, he doesn't have like a checklist in his office where every day he goes, I talked about it 17 times today, did the job, right? He's not setting it out for himself. He just lets his love linger out into his words, into his language. We talk about what we love. C.S. Lewis, famous author, said this. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at a turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent. Because the people with you care for it no more 
than for a tin can in the ditch or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when we are talking in our lives, when we're sharing what we care about in our lives, it's not just an extra that we put on, but it actually increases and completes our joy in it to be able to share it and talk about it with others. There's a business and marketing guy named Seth Godin, and he says that the people that you want caring about your product are not people that you've had to train about how awesome your product is, people you've had to hire onto your team. He calls them sneezers. He says they're people who have whatever it is that you want them to have. They like your product, they love your product, and they just kind of naturally go around with that product sickness just sneezing on people. (laughs) Don't you want to be the kind of person that sneezes Jesus? I didn't have that in my notes, and I didn't plan on saying it, and that sounds weird, doesn't it, right? I think you should go to work tomorrow and go, hey, look, this is what my pastor said. He said some stuff about sneezing Jesus. I don't know. I'm considering praying about different church, right? But you get what I'm saying, right? Don't you want to be a person that doesn't have to sit down and train yourself in some kind of structured, regimented approach of how to tell somebody about Jesus? As valuable as that can be sometimes, don't you want to be a person who doesn't depend on absolutely having to have all that stuff and everything has to be exactly right for you to ever get the word Jesus out of your mouth? Don't you want to be a person who just loves Jesus so it happens pretty frequently that you just talk about Jesus and people are going to have to deal with Jesus if they're going to be around you? Paul says, these guys have all been around me, and God has added a whole lot of purpose to my pain because though I have been restricted here in one sense, the gospel message through my life has been amplified all the way out to the far stretches of Rome, to this impactful, important group of people. They've heard about Jesus because I've sought for my imprisonment to matter for the sake of Jesus. I'm finding a happiness that's abnormal during a house arrest. That could be true for you. Instead of praying God, stop it. Instead of praying God, make it in. Will we be people who pray God, use it? Will we be people who pray God, make it matter? Yes, God, please relieve us of this. Yes, but God, while we're here, use this. Make it matter. I think of the movie that came out a few years back. Some of you, especially my guys, probably are going to be fans. The Patriot. (laughs) Movie set in the Revolutionary War and Mel Gibson's character was Benjamin, some last name that I'm not going to try because I usually get the last name wrong and then people call it out during service and it gets weird, right? But he's a leader in the army and and the people come, the Redcoats come, they attack actually his property and harm some of his and I believe maybe even kill one of his kids. But you see this scene where this guy who's been a pacifist who said, I don't want to fight, I don't want to go to war about this, I don't think this is the time. All of a sudden, it's the time. And when it's the time, he gets his weapon, and then he gets his boys, and they go and position themselves in the woods. And as the enemy is making their way through a trail through the woods, he's got everybody sat out just right and at an angle. He's telling them exactly who to shoot and when to start and how to do the whole thing. And there's this moment in the movie. I love this moment. He runs down a little bit from where he leaves his boys, gets in another position. He's backed up against the tree, and he's about to turn, and they're going to start firing. And he says this little prayer. You might have missed it because he doesn't bow to pray. It doesn't look super religious. But he says out loud to God, he says, God, make me fast and accurate. He doesn't say in that moment, though his heart is breaking, no doubt, about the pain that his family is experiencing. I'm sure he's crying out to God from from moanings in his soul. He doesn't even realize. I'm sure he's going to talk to God about that more later. I'm just guessing he will, right? But in that moment, he's not going, God, make this stop. What he says is, God, this is the place that I am, and so I'm asking you to make me effective, make me fast, and make me accurate. What if in your heart we could love you as a church? You could experience the love of Jesus, people coming around side you, trying to help you with your burden like we've been talking about. 
all that matters, yes. But what if also in that moment you could be saying, hey, God, man, if this is going to be a part of my life, I want it to be a part of your glory through my life. We can have happiness in our hurt if we'll aim our hurt at gospel reach. Jump back in. Let's read these last few verses, 15 through 18. He's going to extrapolate out and tell us what it's looked like as people have started to preach. He says, verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So he said, in those first three verses, he said, hey, listen, a lot of other believers, they're becoming more bold because they see my imprisonment and they see me sitting here in prison, but I'm talking about Jesus and it's working and people are starting to hear more about Jesus. People are starting to trust in Jesus. They're becoming emboldened. He goes on to make sure we see the whole picture, though. I love the honesty of Scripture. He says in these verses, listen, there are some who are indeed preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. They're, they're trying to afflict me. They're trying to hurt me in my imprisonment. They're thinking that if they go out and preach the same message and say, this is what Paul says, that somehow that's going to bring more pressure on me. That's going to bring more pain in my direction. Or maybe they're going out and trying to preach the gospel and, and make themselves famous. They think they're going to grow to be the famous apostle, the famous preacher, the famous church leader. They're trying to afflict me in some way as they're out and they're preaching. I just want you to hear this, that if you're going to make yourself vulnerable and you're going to aim the hurt in your life at gospel reach into other people's lives, you're opening yourself up in a vulnerable way such that you might be hurt. I'm not happy about that. I don't want that to happen for you, but I want to be honest with you. It might hurt. He says, some indeed preach Christ from this. He says, the latter do it out of love. They know that I'm here for the defense of this gospel, and they're seeing it, and they're going, I love this Jesus too, and if he will preach Jesus from his pain, I will preach Jesus from my if he'll preach Jesus from his house arrest, I'll preach Jesus knowing that house arrest could happen for me. What if your life was the thing that emboldened another believer to proclaim the gospel? Because I want you to know that this is what it looks like. See, he gets down to the end in the verse and he says, listen, some are preaching Christ out of good motives. Some are preaching Christ out of bad motives. But he says in verse 18, Here's my big deal. Here's my summation statement about all this, says Paul. What then? Only that in every way, whether it's those who are preaching the gospel out of pretense or it's those who are preaching it out of love and truth for Jesus, either way, Jesus is being proclaimed. See, he's tied his happiness in large measure to the proclamation of the gospel. Now, some of us might hear that and go, man, that's... That's a big wager. It's a big wager for my life to not put up any hedge bets, no props, for me to just go, I'm all in on God using my life for his glory. I'm all about God using my life for his message. I'm going to tie myself and how much happiness and joy I might experience in life to how much I'm knowing him and making him known. That and that alone is where I'm going to look for my joy. Doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good ball game. As an Alabama fan, I would say, if you see a good one sometime, let me know, please, God. 
doesn't mean you can't enjoy some things. It just means that the focus in my life, where I know that the joy is supposed to come from, where I know that the big happy is supposed to flood in, isn't in this ballgame, isn't in this job, isn't in this vacation, isn't in this fill-in-the-blank in your life. It's in Jesus. It's in the message of the freedom he wants to give to others going forward. He says, because I live that way, I'm able to see that whether they're preaching from good motives or bad motives, Jesus is being put out there and talked about, and people are having to consider Jesus. Some of us would go, hey, I don't, I don't know that I can stake my happiness on that, because at the end of the day, I don't know that I'm good enough at a Christian, being a Christian to, to really make that happen. Can I just say this to you? That, that God's passion for his glory secures the hope of happiness for the missional heart. <laughs> that it's not your effort and how well you do it at living the Christian life that secures your happiness. That's not what we're saying. Paul's not saying, hey, I'm perfect. He talks about his struggles many times throughout scriptures. He, listen, it's not about how great you do it. It's just about how you position yourself for the glory of God. And here's what you can bank on, not on your performance, but you can bank on God's pure, white-hot passion for his glory. God's glory is just the experience of his holy character. It's when people see God truthfully and they go, whoa, and they respond in whatever way. That's God's glory. Glory is about experience and response. God is so serious about that. He tells us over and over again in Scripture, Hebrews 8, 11, he says, listen, no longer are you going to need to teach each one, each one his brother and each one his neighbor. You're not going to have to teach each other. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. He's saying, listen, I'm going to be accessible to everybody. I want people to know me. I want glory. Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I'm the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise. I won't share with any carved idol. He's going, hey, I'm God, and I'm not nervous or shy about it. I'm God, and I want you to know it because it's good for you to know my glory. It says in Psalm 46:10, be still and know that I'm God. You remember that one? But he says, listen, he doesn't say be still and know that I'm God so that something will happen. He just says be still and know that I'm God, and then he states a couple of facts. This is who I am. This is who I'm calling you to be still and remember. I will be exalted among all the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. It's not conditional. He's just saying, be still and remember who I am. I'm going to be exalted everywhere. We're going to see in a couple of weeks this promise, this truth, that every knee on heaven and earth and under the earth, every knee is going to bow and say that Jesus is Lord. So if you're in this room today and you aren't really happy with Christianity, don't so sure about Jesus, don't really like Christians, know that you're not the enemy and we love you, but I would encourage everybody in this room, take a glance at your kneecaps, seriously. They're going to touch the floor before Lord Jesus one day <laughs> because our God is committed to his own glory. He's not going to back down. It's good for us and it's glorious for him and he is absolutely passionate about that glory and that is what I believe Paul has banked his hope for happiness on as a missional heart, as one who's saying, I want to live every day for the mission of God. He's going, I'm not committed to my performance. I'm committed to the God who will carry me. It's not about perfection. It's about positioning myself. Here's how I thought about this this week, and then we'll be done. I don't know if you'll remember having done this maybe in grade school, but I have this vague memory, kindergarten, first grade, of going on a field trip somewhere to a park. And the teacher knew that the park had a stream with a bridge going over it. And so... They, they encouraged us. We built these little, these little boats, right? these little paper boats. If you've ever seen those, right? There it is. All right. 
I think mine was made out of cardboard, but something similar to this. We made these little boats, and then we were on this field trip. We were going to release our boats and see who would make it the farthest down the stream. You ever done this before? Maybe as a science project, maybe for fun, back in the, the video store days, because we didn't have much going on, obviously. Tumbleweeds were blowing through. We were like, let's build a boat. All right, anyway. Right. You put it in the stream, you see how far it goes. And I'll never forget putting my little boat on the stream. And I wasn't the only one, but it was really disappointing to me. I put my little boat on the stream and the little babbling brook carried it for just a second. But there just hadn't been a lot of rain and there just wasn't a whole lot of water. And it wasn't very long before it looked just like this one. It was sitting really still up on a piece of concrete, right? A little piece of asphalt just bumped up against something. It's just sitting there, not moving, right? The boat can't move itself. But imagine this. What if you took this same exact boat and you positioned this boat anywhere near just the, even the edges of a raging river? What if you took that boat to these rapids? Can you imagine just getting close enough? You wouldn't have to sit it down just right. You wouldn't have to make sure the, the bow and the stern are in the right place. You, none of that stuff. You could be like 20 feet away, and if it's heavy enough, all you got to do is just get the boat to the water. <laughs> if you get your boat to that rapid, that rapid carries your boat. Promise you. Guarantee it. Now, your boat may look a little more tattered and torn than you planned on. Your boat may not sail as smoothly as you would like. It may be a little uncomfortable, but if you position yourself around a force like that, you're moved forward. And I'm here to say to you that God is a raging force committed to his glory, to his goodness being known throughout the earth. And if we will trust him enough to go, I'm going to position myself and say, I'm going to seek happiness in God's glory going forth through my life. My boat's not perfect. The water may not be just right in my, but if I can get close to him and just get my boat there, he's going to carry my life forward, even in hurt and pain. And people are going to know him through my life. God's glory secures the hope of happiness for the mission lost. Now, here's, here's the challenge for all of us. It's great to say that there is happiness available to us in our herd if we'll aim it for gospel reach. It's great to see that God has this great passion about his glory. And if we'll stake the, the chance of our happiness upon that, then maybe we'll find a more happy life than we've ever. It's great to say those things, but we'll never experience those things until we trust God in those things. We, at some point, have got to be people who step in and go, okay, I'm hurting, and I'm going to be a missionary for Jesus in my workplace. Hey, my life's imperfect and even sometimes maybe embarrassing, and I'm going to be one who wants Jesus to be seen through the wreckage in my life. If we put ourselves in that place, I'd just be willing to bet from what we can see of the God that's in Scripture that he will come through and do some amazing things in our lives. That he will come through and leverage our lives. And we may experience more pain than we've ever imagined. We may experience critique and all kind of stuff that we don't want because we're talking about Jesus. That may happen, but I bet you will also experience more happiness because the gospel will go forth in our lives. And there could be nothing bigger, more fulfilling, more important. Jesus could have checked out at any point. I think about him just before he died on, on the cross and there are the thieves there. At one place in scripture, it says they mocked him, the two of them. At another place, it says one mocked him, probably because the other one, we know what he did. He finally recognized in his last hour and said, hey, you are who you say you are. I want to be with you. 
in the very last moment. He can't do anything to prove himself. He can't do anything to be good before God. He's hanging on a cross, nailed to it literally because he's a criminal. And he goes, hey, can I just trust you? And even then, in that last moment, when Jesus' nerves have to be firing off all across his back and his body is weeping, I mean, it's just he's in sincere pain. It would have been really easy in that moment just to go, man, you waited too late. Man, I'm too tired. The pain is, is just too big. But instead, in that moment, Jesus goes, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, you can be with me. Do we want to be people like that? That that Jesus would live out that heartbeat through us. What would that look like for you? I'm trusting God to tell you. Let's pray. God. I'm just asking you to make yourself big in the eyes of our hearts. God, I'm asking you to. Be real to us, God. We know that you're real. We know that you're alive. We know that you're worth it. Those are all things that most of us know with our minds. But God, would you, in the way that only you can, in the way that only you do, would you gently, tenderly point into our souls the places where we know it, but we maybe don't believe it? God, in the moments of our lives where we know the right answers, but Faith isn't moving our feet. Would you let us be people who cry out to you in our pain, who cry out to you to stop our pain, but who cry out first for you to use our pain? Would you let us be people who know this weird, ironic, awesome thing that can happen when we have sincere happiness squarely right in the middle of intense hurt? Jesus, we're, we're not like you in so many ways. Small things that shouldn't trip us up, that shouldn't hurt, they do. We need your help. We want to be happy in you, Jesus. For us together and for each individual here, would you show us what's next? Would you lead us to reach out to that person who can maybe help us figure out that next faith step, how it is that, that we can still seek you in our pain? Would you lead us, God, to proclaim you to somebody who's watching us hurt, who's aware? Jesus, will you lead us all? Will you convince all of our souls in the way that only you can that your, glo your glory through our lives is, is completely worth it and there is gladness to be had there? gladness that can't be touched or taken away. Lead us in how we need to respond. Just let us be honest and give us the courage to follow through. We ask these things for your name, Jesus.